Viola and I are really part of uh, a, a research project where we're looking at the stabilization discourse and measuring effect. So really we're dividing up this afternoon's session between us where I'll look at the stabilization discourse and Bjorn will, will pick up the, uh, uh, the theme of, of, of measuring effectiveness. Um, the work really began um, in Helmand um, last uh, two years ago now. Um, where we helped draft the UK plan for Helmand, the revised plan uh, for Helmand. And one of the greatest difficulties that we had was identifying how you measure progress on stabilisation. And there were two, two problems here. One was the, the difficulty of defining what was meant by stabilisation, which is what I'll address now. And the second was, was really um, how do you actually begin to conceptualise measuring progress towards an ideal state of, uh, of stability. Um, for my paper, it's, it's worth setting a context. The stabilization discourse, where stabilization becomes a, 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 a specific activity, uh, a specific label, really begins at the end of 2003. Um, it's a product of the, the failure to bring stability particularly to Iraq, but also um, the increasing instability in Afghanistan. And what we see is governments developing procedures, processes, and institutions to try and manage uh, the various levers of government so that intervening parties, particularly uh, the Americans and some of the Western Europeans and the Canadians, uh, are more capable uh, of uh, producing more coherent uh, response, that's more capable of delivering what the US Institute of Peace would describe as a viable peace. And you saw in the UK in early 2004 uh, an attempt to create a post-conflict reconstruction unit that would work tridepartmentally between the foreign uh, defense and development ministries. But you saw uh, parallels in the, in the United States with the office uh, the, the SCRS in Canada with START, um, and also development ministries in Holland uh, and, uh, and Denmark that sought to identify um, the instruments and approaches in fragile states and post-conflict environments. There are really two parts um, to this agenda. One is the institutional changes that we see, uh, and the set, uh, w which relates to what the MOD often describe as the comprehensive approach, an attempt to bring together those three government departments uh, into some sort of coherence. Uh, and there's also a sense of looking at the instruments of intervening in fragile states. Um, within the UK, I think it's fair to say that uh, the, three develop the three ministries um, that often found themselves in, in stabilization post-conflict environments, MOD, Foreign Office and Development, the appetite for the stabilization discourse was very different, with the MOD probably the, uh, the hungriest uh, for this policy discourse, reflecting its experience of counterinsurgency in Malaya, which had a heavy um, civilian component, a politically-led counterinsurgency, but also the sense that uh, cementing peace in the Balkans and in, in Iraq uh, required um, the transformative effect of development and political uh, intervention, that the military tool on its own was insufficient in some way. But it also reflected the military sense of the causality of conflict. Uh, and here, one could argue that they were infected with the discourse of the human security agenda uh, and the, uh, the idea that, politic, uh, that development, um, uh, underdevelopment, poor development, inequitable development, was a significant cause of conflict um, and that uh, the development issue was, uh, uh, agenda was key to establishing uh, a more induced, uh, enduring stability. Some meat on the idea of a comprehensive tri-departmental approach uh, was uh, really developed with the creation of the post-conflict um, reconstruction unit in 2004. But the idea that this would somehow deliver an authoritative voice in government that would drive the three departments of state into some form of integrated approach uh, was never to be achieved. 
Um, the principal idea, uh, the principal reason for this difficulty is that the post-conflict reconstruction unit reported to the very ministries that it was intended for it to coordinate. And it reported to a management board of two-star uh, civilians uh, from DFID, from the FCO, and from the MOD. So the idea of a strident uh, coordinating role within government uh, was lost uh, in this much weaker institutional mechanism for coordination. That said, um, uh, there, there were serious attempts to improve horizontal working across government, and the PCIU did play an important role uh, in bringing together those governments and creating a platform by which they could produce a joined-up government plan rather than stapling together uh, three uh, separately produced uh, plans for Iraq and <coughs> Afghanistan. There was also an attempt uh, to give uh, incentives to the three government departments um, to work horizontally and collaboratively. And we can see this in a, in a rather bureaucratic but quite important development, and that's the creation of public service agreements. Uh, originally in 1998, they're a simple device, a contract between the Treasury and the delivery departments uh, in which departments undertake to deliver certain public services uh, and they are given a certain amount of money. By um, uh, 2007, these public service agreements had changed. Um, some of them were cross-governmental, requiring, in the case of PSA 30, which was to reduce the impact of conflict through enhanced UK and international efforts. It had a foreign office lead, but DFID and the MOD were responsible for delivery. And elements of bringing together the, uh, the joined-up approach <coughs> from government uh, were to be delivered largely through uh, the facilitating role of the post-conflict reconstruction unit. So some of these bureaucratic measures helped with the idea of a comprehensive approach to delivering stabilization. The PSA 30 came with um, a financial pool as well, um, a new fund called the Stabilization F Aid Fund, £269 uh, million, uh, pounds, which was really created by the combination of the pre-existing global and Africa conflict prevention pools. Um, so that conflict prevention work was ring-fenced financially in a new conflict prevention pool and stabilisation uh, work uh, was subject to the Stabilisation Aid Fund or SAD. I think there are some issues with this. Some Treasury officials, officials argued that this was a mechanism to preserve conflict prevention investments. Others saw it more in more realistic terms, which was um, that this was um, really the short-term political imperative of Iraq and Afghanistan drawing off uh, the longer-term conflict prevention funding, and this is a theme I'll pick up uh, at the very end, where I look at the distorting effect of uh, the stabilization agenda. <coughs> um, the uh, 2007, with the creation of uh, PSA 30 and the Stabilization Aid Fund, you also saw a renaming of the post-conflict reconstruction unit. It was, uh, it, it was labeled as the Stabilization Unit for, for really two quite important reasons, and there's quite a lot in a name. The first was that um, Iraq and Afghanistan, its main efforts, were not post-conflict environments. Um, and secondly, the idea that uh, you brought stability through reconstruction uh, was a distortion of really what was going on. What you were seeking to do was to build the legitimacy of the host state, um, and the stabilization program wasn't a, a, a process of managing reconstruction. It was a process of engaging uh, and creating some form of political settlement. So the renaming from PCIU reflected both a different environment and also a different activity. Um, 
the UK model for stabilization also began to change. I think some of it reflected the experience of the Balkans, where uh, Balkan stabilization was defined in fairly simple uh, terms, which is essentially uh, the imposition of um, military stability by an outside force, in this case I4 or S4, um, and then the delivery of core infrastructure and critical public services. And these were seen as the core contributions from the international civilian community. <coughs> I think by the time we see um, Helmand in uh, 2007, we see a much more nuanced approach to what the stabilization discourse means. And it's somewhere between the counterinsurgency literature of the Ministry of Defense, and it's somewhere adopting many of the principles uh, uh, of OECD DAC work on fragile states, and it's beginning to represent some of the best, uh, the best practice uh, of uh, DFID development ministries. So it's a hybrid uh, approach. Um, the stabilization unit produced something called the hot stabilization paper. And this conceived as stabilization aiming to support places that were emerging from violent conflict towards a period of peaceful development, often through external and military and civilian support to the weak host government. Um, and the support was focused on extending the legitimacy and capability of that government and providing immediately tangible benefits to the population or quick wins that underpinned their confidence in the state and the political process that it represented. Stabilization activities explicitly were intended to impact positively upon formal and informal political dynamics at all levels <coughs> and to contribute to a non-violent political settlement or interim accommodation. In simplistic terms, what this meant was an increasing focus on extending the legitimacy and core capabilities of the state as opposed to international provision uh, of uh, uh, critical infrastructure. So it's an emphatic uh, uh, change. I think three things emerged out of this discourse. Um, development, uh, stabilization focused on uh, creating some form of political some, uh, settlement between parties competing uh, for power. It sought to support the uh, extension of the state's legitimacy through uh, creating core functions such as territorial control, but also deeper uh, functions such as control of the state's finances, and also facilitating the legitimate government's ability to deliver what's expected by the population and what gives it authority to uh, represent them. So there were uh, inherent uh, within this model uh, accountability, legitimacy, public service delivery, uh, and a key set of core functions. Nevertheless, uh, whilst the British um, talked in terms of uh, very broad principles, um, I think it's fair to say that there was no prescriptive model. And this was very different from, for example, the Canadian and the American approaches, where there were generic, almost checklists of activities that, that if you followed them almost slavishly, they would deliver uh, stability. Instead, you saw um, a set of general principles from the British, where a stabilization program would reflect the core drivers of conflict, the public expectations in the area which was being stabilized, and a great sense of pragmatism. And that meant that your stabilization program, whether it was Somalia, Sudan, uh, uh, Lebanon, or um, Afghanistan or Iraq, would look probably quite fundamentally different. And there would be a different balance between support to a political process, attempts to impose a degree of security, and reconstruction and development programs. So perhaps the core problem with um, uh, stabilization is that the principles lead to enormous diversity in what stabilization uh, looks like. 
That said, stabilization program <coughs> would always have uh, an inclusive political process at its heart, and if they didn't, stability would almost certainly not follow. Um, there would always be a, a security dimension where security was focused on uh, individual security, uh, and there would also be an attempt to reconstruct the state's ability uh, to uh, deliver core infrastructure and services in pursuit of extending its legitimacy. The role of external actors in this discourse was often um, far less than perhaps uh, uh, many would argue. The idea being that whilst the state could, uh, the, inter the external actors could not impose a political settlement in Afghanistan or in Iraq, uh, they could support uh, ex the extremely weak domestic institutions and also support uh, the development of a narrative about the benefits of peace that would support the political process and develop momentum towards. Uh, by time for political processes. So in this model, um, the stabilization process was not about sustainable development per se, it was about creating the conditions uh, under which a population uh, would have its trust in the political process consolidated. Um, and the international role was often one of um, uh, creating a vision of what might be achievable. Uh, the EU integration anchor offered to Bosnia and Kosovo are, are good examples, as is the extension of Afghan government capable of providing essential public services in the Pashtun belt. So that, that long-term vision of what is possible from engagement in that process is, uh, is um, significantly important. Um, I'm going to be running out of time, so I want to switch um, really to some controversies at the end of the paper and, and also to plug the paper a little bit. It'll be published by the Overseas Development Institute uh, Humanitarian Policy Group um, probably in the next uh, couple of months or so. Um, but uh, some conclusions about the stabilization discourse. What stabilization has meant is that the British approach to stabilization uh, is about creating a political settlement or a social contract between a population and its government. It's much more politically nuanced than, for example, the American approach in Afghanistan, which tends to reflect the infrastructure plus a degree of security will buy you uh, a, a, a rather uh, automatic form uh, of uh, loyalty from the Pashtun population. I think there are real problems with that, uh, that, with that method. Um, but the British approach, the idea that you are engaged in what is quite clearly a liberal uh, peace-building agenda at the um, sub-state level, at district and community levels, um, I think represents a particular conflation of UK interests and values. Uh, and one wonders whether that political space um, is still as vibrant as it was uh, in, in the uh, Blair, Blair administration's period, um, whether or not that will be sustainable, and whether or not the, uh, the idea of stabilization as a, a, as a policy discourse will survive the rise of new powers, particularly China, um, where uh, the sovereignty uh, uh, norm um, is uh, perhaps more resistant to the type of social engineering that stabilization represents. I think there's also uh, a challenge with the stabilization model with its focus on the state, uh, building a social contract between some form of reformable state that was willing to deliver uh, public service benefits uh, and to be accountable and representative. And one wonders whether that focus on the state is highly appropriate in places such as uh, Somalia uh, or Sudan. But also the level of ambition of the stabilization agenda as well. Um, there have been significant difficulties in understanding what it is that the Pashtun population would need to, uh, to have in order to legitimize the extension of Kabul's control. Um, what exactly is the critical path and the processes and the stages towards a sustainable or viable peace? 
And I think it's taken the UK from 2006 in Helmand until probably around now to understand really what that critical path will be. So the interesting argument is while stabilization uh, as a response, as opposed to the uh, misappropriation of humanitarian tools or simply a military response to a, a, a crisis, stabilization is this great policy discourse that offers a, a new vision of how you bring about stability, but it seems to require a degree of knowledge about a society and its political dynamics that's beyond the capacity of intervening states to apply in that stabilization phase of the first two or three years. Um, there's also, uh, finally, uh, uh, another problem uh, related to um, the governance of stabilization. Within the UK, stabilization is owned by the counterinsurgency mob in the Ministry of Defense. It's owned by the fragile states element in the development ministries, and it's owned by the Foreign Office. But the language of stabilization is almost identical to other policy discourses. For example, UNDP early recovery discourse um, talks about almost identical things. Early recovery is a multicultural <coughs> process of recovery that begins in a humanitarian setting, often a war or, 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 or a, a, um, a, a natural disaster, but it's guided by development principles, as is stabilization, that seek to build on humanitarian programs and catalyze sustainable development opportunities to generate a self-sustaining, uh, nationally owned, resilient process for post-crisis recovery. So the, the theory of early recovery led by the UN um, is almost identical to the state-led, interest-based uh, stabilization agenda. UN OCHA um, have a slightly different definition of uh, stabilization, uh, which shares many of the similarities with stabilization uh, from uh, governments such as the UK and, to, to a lesser extent, uh, the United States. And then finally, the NGO discourse, the World Bank and USAID discourse, uh, on community-driven reconstruction has exactly the same mechanisms as stabilization in Helmand. So who should control these processes? What role is left for the UN? Uh, what does this mean for the instrumentalization of humanitarian organizations in stabilization strategies? How much politics does this inject into the humanitarian community? And does it in extinguish forever uh, the flame of independent, neutral, uh, and uh, uh, impartial humanitarian assistance? So I think the stabilization agenda, uh, whilst it's a powerful policy discourse, whilst it's become to dominate debates, um, uh, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, and whilst it, it will be with us for at least the next five years or so, I think there are significant challenges both to operationalizing it and to the other actors involved in a stabilization environment. 